So last week we saw Jesus meet a group of people who, a bit like us, are locked down in a house and they're confused, they are afraid, and maybe even feeling guilty. And Jesus approaches them and he brings them peace. But as the story moves on, what we find is that one of them had missed out. One of them was not there. And the disciples that had met Jesus are not exactly doing very much to convince him of their new beliefs. Let us look together at John 20. Short passage, quite well known to many of us. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was. We don't even know who his twin was. But we do know that on Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection, he was somewhere else. He was not there when Jesus appeared. And so just imagine with me for a moment the emotions he must be going through, having missed the moment. Now, I once took a vacation with my friends, except for one guy who had to stay back at work. And it just so happened that at this time, there was a series of commercials on TV of this exact scenario. And uh, there would be people on the commercial drinking cocktails and wearing Hawaiian shirts and the sun was out and they were standing around by the pool and it would cut from this scene on vacation to a grey office with strip lighting and photocopiers and piles of paperwork back in the UK. Picture the office, it looked just like it. And these guys on holiday would call all of their friends back home and particularly this guy throughout the trip They would call him and they would just irritate him while he did his work. And in our favourite scene in the commercial, they would conduct the whole conversation through a snorkel, which we thought was rather inventive. And we did this to our friend Matthew for an entire week. It cost us about £100 in overseas phone calls and about €15 in snorkels. But it was all money well spent. His misery heightened our joy at the vacation. And I was not a believer back then. I I wouldn't behave that way anymore. No way. I've been sanctified. But uh, we know what it feels like. Matthew made it very clear to us what it felt like to miss out on something that big. Thomas has not missed a vacation. Thomas has missed the resurrection, the high point in salvation history. The moment that transforms fear into hope and the moment that transforms death into life and transforms guilt into peace, he has missed that moment. It happened when he was not there. Just imagine what that would feel like. And it's worse. Thomas is a serious bloke. If anyone would have enjoyed the resurrection, it was Thomas. Thomas seems to be one of the disciples, maybe the disciple who is most starting to get this. They did not have the advantage of the book of Acts and the understanding and the epistles that we have to explain the resurrection. But Thomas, it seems, from John's gospel was just about the closest to getting this stuff. This is the same Thomas. We just go back a few chapters to chapter 11 of John's Gospel. We find Thomas is the one saying, I am ready, Jesus, to die with you. And then in John 14, who says, show us the way to everlasting life. 
Thomas is the one who is wrestling with the concept of death and resurrection in some sort of primitive way. And he would have loved this moment. Very serious about his faith is Thomas. And so you can only imagine what is going on inside of his heart. There in verse 25, when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They may have even said it through a snorkel, I don't know. That's called, a, that's called asegesis, that is reading too much into the text. I don't think they're gloating, I don't think they're having fun at his expense, but if you listen to the, the podcast Bible study, it was Kat who pointed out that they were glad. They were just happy. They were glad when they saw the Lord. They're not gloating, they're just enjoying themselves. And he was not there. He missed out on the moment. You get the sense of his anguish and his disturbance and irritation and confusion and all of these things from the way his very simple response to the disciples escalates rapidly throughout the verse as you go. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, we have, they say, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, well, you could, and place my hand into his side, Bit weird, Thomas, but I see you're getting carried away. He says, I will never believe. It's even more emphatic in the original language. He he uses the word no twice. Never, never, he says, will I believe. There are two Greek words for no. He uses them both. He really is adamant that he wants to see Jesus. Unless I see the marks on his flesh, I will never believe. Unless I touch the marks on his flesh, I will never believe. Now, a lot is made in sermons like this about Thomas's doubt, as though Thomas requires some peculiar weight of evidence to convince him of the resurrection compared to all of the others. Actually, if you look back a couple of chapters, you'll see really he's pretty much the same as all of them. Don't forget that Mary was aware of the resurrection first. She preached this first to the disciples. They did not believe her. John had to see the grave for himself to believe. Peter saw the grave himself and did not believe. And their behavior right now, these 10 guys in a room, not exactly convincing, is it? Really? Look at verse 26. Eight days later, Eight days is a really long time to wait. Eight days is a long time cooped up with a group of people whose main topic of conversation was probably that time when we saw the risen Lord. That would be really difficult. And if we zoom in on the language here carefully, we pick up some of the nuances that I think John is trying to make here. Now, the way they counted days back then, they they would count the day they were on. So eight days is, in fact, a week. It is the very same day of the week where we saw the story last time. I think we're being told that the story today is actually very little different from the story last week, same time of the week. Then it says his disciples, not the, his, emphasizing whose they are. Then it says they were inside again, and that word again is emphatic. The word again gives this sense of something being on repeat. Again is actually a word that is derived from 
the wrestling ring and the concept of, of writhing around, like, you know, going around in a circle. Here we go again. We're on a loop. And uh, it's the same day of the week. It's the same group. They're in the same room, or one like it. That's not quite clear. They are doing the same thing. They've even set up the room in the same way. It says again, the doors were locked, just like before. There is a strong parallel between these two scenes one week apart. Now, we do not know what they have been up to for the week in between. But if it was worth reporting, it would have been reported. So we can surmise that they weren't up to very much. As far as we can tell, the way this scene mirrors the one the week before is designed to show us that maybe some doubts have crept back in again. Maybe a little bit of fear has crept back in again. Maybe a bit of guilt has crept in again. And I speculate now, complete speculation from my own sin. Maybe they've acquired some new guilt. I mean, they've had a whole week to be humans, so they probably have, if they're like me. If you've spent a week locked up with a load of people, maybe you've done some sin. I'll leave that for your own application. But although they've had this great experience a week ago, it's not exactly being used right now, is it? And then Jesus appears again. And then Jesus speaks again. And Jesus says again the exact same thing that he said twice in the previous passage. The first thing that comes from his mouth is the the same thing he said last time, peace be with you. Maybe their attitude has not changed, but his attitude has not changed either. I mean, if this was me, I'd be bringing up all of the things I'd done for them and all of the ways they'd failed me. But I'm not Jesus. His attitude is completely the same as it always has been, entirely consistent with his character, entirely consistent with his mission, entirely consistent with grace, entirely consistent with the cross where he died for us, entirely consistent with the resurrection where he rose for us. It's all about them. His willingness to offer peace has not changed. His desire to equip them to go out and spread it has not changed. His purposes haven't changed. He hasn't changed. What a beautiful lack of judgment this is from Jesus Christ right here. What a, what a wonderful, faithful man Jesus is. He just speaks to them in grace, even though it looks like they're messing it up a little bit. And then in verse 27, then he said to Thomas. So thus far, this has been said to everybody, but now he turns to Thomas. He knows what is in Thomas's heart, and he knows what has come out of Thomas's lips because he is God, he knows all things, and he addresses very specifically Thomas's double negative, never, never will I believe. Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's a command. In fact, it is six commands, and Jesus never gives a command unless it can be obeyed. He's not in the habit of telling us to do stuff that we cannot do. Put, see, put, place. We're being told here the resurrection is real. Then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. A sort of double injunction here to do this thing against Thomas's double no. Now, maybe there's a little very gentle rebuke here. Come on, you should have believed from the evidence that you had. 
but it's okay. A gentle rebuke is, is fine if it comes from someone who loves you, someone who you trust and someone who wants you to grow. If a rebuke comes in peace, that's okay. So if Kat calls me on my sin, I know that when she does that, it's not to win best spouse competition because she won that years ago. But who won her? Eh? Not so stupid, am I? I'd far rather live with her than be her living with me, I can tell you. But I know that when she calls me on my sin, it is for my good. It is for my peace. And actually, not just for my peace. She's thinking about the family. She's thinking about our church family. It is for the good and the peace of others as well when she calls me on this stuff. Jesus is is calling Thomas in here into peace so that he too could go out and spread it. That is Christ's purpose. If you detect a gentle rebuke here, note that it comes in the context of, of peace and spreading peace. One little tiny revelation of Jesus is all it takes to bring it. And then, after this one revelation of Jesus, Thomas is on. He is ready. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Awesome, says Thomas. And all throughout John's Gospel, we've seen confessions like this. He's the Son of God. That's chapter 1. He's the Savior of the world. Chapter 4. He's the Son of Man. Chapter 9. He is the Christ. Chapter 11. This confession from Thomas is greater than all of those confessions in the Gospel of John combined. It is the high point of what John reveals about who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. Some deny that Jesus is God. And they have such trouble with this verse that they accuse Thomas of blaspheming here. Like he's so surprised that Jesus is real that he blurts out an expletive and uses God's name in vain like an OMG. If I did this, my mum would wash my mouth out with soap. Do you think Jesus would just ignore someone using God's name in vain? It is deeply sinful. Of course he wouldn't ignore it. This is not blasphemy. This is a confession that sits within a framework in John's Gospel of ever-increasing confessions. It's not said about Jesus either. It is said to Jesus, if you look closely enough. Thomas answered him. Then in the vocative, that is a form of, of the language that is addressed to a person or a thing, my Lord and my God. So the only way this could be blasphemy would be if Jesus were not God. But if that were the case, Jesus would correct him and say, what are you talking about, man? Are you crazy? Shh, he might hear, but he doesn't say that. He says, yeah, good, excellent, well done. And it's even better for other people who believe this as well. So what is belief? That's the question. Thomas believes. Jesus commends the belief, but what is belief? Because belief brings peace. Some of us don't have peace right now, and I wonder if some of us don't believe. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, that sounds basic, but maybe it's worth going back to it. Let's look even more closely at exactly what it is that Thomas says 
that Jesus says constitutes belief and then commends and asks him to share. My Lord and my God. So this belief is not merely an intellectual assent to the veracity of a proposition, like God is real, or I believe that God exists. It's not even an intellectual assent to the proposition that Jesus is God, actually. Jesus is real, or Jesus exists. Far more intensely than either of those ideas, this is a personal commitment to him. He says, my God, the God of me. And not just a personal commitment, but also a practical submission as well. He says, my Lord, or the Lord of me. You're not just God, you are my God, and because you are my God, you are my Lord, and therefore, if you tell me what to do, I will go and do it. That is belief, a relationship with God that manifests in some sort of practical change. We're not just trying to do a book study and figure out some facet of what God is like. We're trusting in him personally. Now, in the same way, I'm not asking you just simply to believe that God is real. Because that will not bring you any comfort at all. In fact, actually, if you're suffering right now and you believe that God is real, it might bring you less comfort. It might drive you farther away from God. Because you're thinking, hang on a minute, if he's real and I'm suffering, he can't be very nice, can he? Thomas's question is, and his response is couched in the reality of the resurrection. He sees that Jesus is doing something about his life and is therefore worth trusting. I'm asking you to believe that Jesus has done something for you, that he died for you, paid for your sins, and rose from the dead, conquering the grave, and guaranteed you eternal life as well. And in the light of that reality, I'm further asking you to dethrone your fear and dethrone your guilt and find peace. God's concern is not whether you believe that he is real or not. His concern is whether you submit to him. Actually, in that sense, he has something in common with Satan here, because Satan would like that as well. They'd both quite like you to submit to them. Only one of them can bring you life, though. And if you place yourself under the authority of God, what we find here from Jesus Christ, who is able to conquer the worst enemy of all, even death, what we find here is that you place yourself under his protection as well. Under the authority is under the protection. That is belief, and that brings peace. That is what Jesus wants for you. Now, I mentioned my friend Bill last week. And have a photograph of him again, and just one camera to approach this week. My friend Bill, that a few years ago I visited in hospital on his deathbed, as he thought, three years ago in hospital. And I mentioned in my sermon last week how much Bill used that time on an open ward to witness and to evangelize the other men in the room and to give them hope. Bill was 97 years old, and amazingly, shockingly, the day after my sermon on Monday, the 20th, Bill died and went to be with the Lord. I can hardly believe the timing. 
Now, if you would rather I not mention you in one of my sermons, I understand why you might feel that way right now. But I can joke about this stuff because Bill was joking on what he thought was his deathbed a few years ago, and I imagine he was joking on his actual deathbed until his dying breath because Bill died in peace. Bill died in peace because he was ready to be with the Lord. Totally ready to be with the Lord. He'd been ready for years. And he used his readiness for a purpose. He used every minute of his readiness to make other people ready. Jesus wants you ready. Jesus wants you to believe. If you're locked in your house and you're afraid, or you're confused, or you're guilty, or you have a weird cocktail of the three, if you feel you're spiraling down this week, Jesus doesn't just want you to think that he's real. He wants you to trust him. And if you do, you'll find, like my friend Bill, it brings peace. Verse 31 concludes, the purpose of belief is this. The purpose of this witness is this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what Bill wanted for people. It's what I want. It's what Jesus wants. And it can be real. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless and protect our congregation watching. God, thank you uh, that we're not called merely to watch, but to participate in worship and to, to go to war in the spiritual realm for the souls of the lost. Father, if any of us are at home afraid, we speak against that fear in the matchless name of Jesus. We thank you that the whole purpose of your death and resurrection was to deliver us from this world and to guarantee us an eternity of peace. So, Father, help us to fix our eyes on you, to trust you and to be transformed by you in the matchless name of Christ alone. Amen.